The following is a presentation from the Recycling Council of Alberta's 2021 webinar series. On April 13th, experts gathered to discuss how Alberta's planned extended producer responsibility policy will impact municipalities. The RCA would like to thank our supporters for making this webinar possible, including Platinum Sponsor, the Alberta Beverage Container Recycling Corporation. In this segment, Calgary City Councillor Peter DeMong leads a discussion on EPR implementation in BC, its impact on municipalities and possible scenarios in Alberta. MLA Searle Turton, an Executive Director of Water and Waste Policy with Alberta Environment and Parks, Heather Von Hoff, introduced the webinar. The panelists include Andrew Doy, Environmental Planner with Metro Vancouver, Ben Van Nostrand, the Environmental Health Services Team Leader with the Columbia Shuswap Regional District, and Cameron Boghen with the Regional District of Okanagan Similkameen. They discuss potential savings to municipalities, the inclusion of ICI, single-use items, and transition plans. Welcome very much to this webinar, which is focused on the EPR impacts to municipalities. We have a lot of interest, obviously, from our Alberta municipalities and also some outside municipalities, and we have brought together a group of very knowledgeable and interesting panelists that are going to talk to us about this issue. So we're really excited to have you all with us. And what we're going to do, first of all, to start is we are absolutely thrilled to have MLA Searle Turton joining us. And Searle really has been our EPR champion in Alberta. He brought a private member's bill to the legislature uh, that, that advanced or that suggested the advancement of EPR. So we are so thrilled to have him with us. And he is going to give a quick introduction now to us and then we'll move on with the rest of the schedule. So if I can turn this over to you, MLA Turton, welcome and thank you very much for joining and thank you for being our champion. Awesome, well, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, so good morning, everyone. My name is Cyril Turton and uh, I'm actually a, uh, a three-term city councillor for the city of Spruce Grove here in Alberta and currently the MLA for Spruce Grove and Stony Plain. And I'm obviously happy to be here and look forward to hearing from all the municipalities here participating in today's discussions. I also look forward to follow-up meetings with you as we move forward on the design of an extended producer responsibility or EPR framework for the province of Alberta. Now, as you know, EPR will create jobs and keep plastics and other materials out of landfills for longer by recycling them through many different uses. Our government is currently engaging with Albertans, industry experts and communities like you on how best to design an EPR framework for plastic waste, packing, printed paper and household hazardous waste. Our proposed approach to managing plastic and other waste will diversify Alberta's economy and create around 220 jobs, all while decreasing the environmental impacts of single-use plastics. Now, I want to thank the partners of the Alberta Collaborative uh, Extended Producer Responsibility Study, which include AUMA, RMA, the Canadian Stewardship Services Alliance, and of course, the cities of Edmonton and Calgary. Your work on a made in Alberta vision for EPR for residential packaging and paper products has helped shape our vision and thinking. Albertans currently pay for recycling services through municipal taxes. An extended producer responsibility model or EPR shifts this responsibility and financial burden for recycling from municipalities and to ratepayers to industry. 
as a polluter pay model, EPR not only shifts the cost of recycling to industry and consumers, it also means we can also leverage economies of scale that municipalities cannot achieve on their own. And it also helps create a more consistent level of service around the province, which benefits everyone here in the province. EPR does not always mean extra costs for consumers. Industry would fund the proposed program and decide whether or not to charge consumers or extra. As part of our engagement on EPR, we are listening to municipalities, stakeholders, consumers, and the public, and look forward to hearing from you and other Albertans before moving forward on our proposed approach. Thank you again for the opportunity to participate in today's session and be part of this very important discussion that I know many of you are looking forward to. You know, obviously we're looking forward to working with Alberta's municipalities and communities, industries and other stakeholders to design a made in Alberta approach to EPR. And again, thank you all for your continued interest in this vitally important subject. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Emily Turton. And, and you're so right. Your experience, too, as a councillor for Spruce Grove, I think, really makes it very appropriate that you're involved in this webinar. So we really appreciate your work. Um, and thank you very much for that intro. So now what we're going to do is we're actually going to shift gears slightly and we're going to go over to Alberta Environment and Parks. So Heather Von Hoff is going to join us now to give us a bit of background on um, Alberta, Alberta's intentions around EPR and, and also the engagement process that they are, are currently undertaking. So I will turn it over now to Heather to uh, give us that background. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm Heather Von Hoff. I'm the Executive Director of Water and Waste Policy with Alberta Environment and Parks. And uh, I'm here today to talk with you about our, our engagement on EPR. So uh, we have identified uh, numerous areas of interest to municipalities, and we've uh, focused our few slides on that this morning. We are engaging with a broad range of stakeholders, so municipalities, the petrochem industry, non-government organizations, uh, stewardship organizations, product manufacturers, product suppliers, and others on our proposed changes um, to create EPR in Alberta. Uh, some of you have already had a chance to attend one of our virtual webinars, um, and we thank you for your participation in that and look forward to your comments through the, uh, through the discussion paper. Um, we'd also really like to thank RCA for hosting today's session. It's an excellent opportunity for municipalities to gather more information on EPR, how implementation has worked in other jurisdictions, and considerations municipalities should be aware of in transitioning to EPR in Alberta in the future. Um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we do have a website uh, where there's a discussion paper and an opportunity to provide uh, feedback through the portal. We encourage you to do that. We are having these virtual sessions. So if you haven't registered for one of those yet, please do. And, you know, we look forward to your responses and comments. Um, the benefits of EPR uh, are, are really large. Um, it helps enable a circular economy, um, which keeps materials of value like plastics and other materials in the economy and out of the landfill. A circular economy is enabled in part by recycling um, and can create jobs, uh, more jobs than landfilling. Materials in a circular economy are used, reused, remanufactured, and the full value of those materials is realized across multiple life cycles. Transferring responsibility to producers from local governments will help reduce community ma waste management costs and make recycling services more consistent and accessible for Albertans. EPR helps create economies of scale 
and improves efficiency by connecting members of the material supply chain. So for example, collectors, transporters, processors um, of used plastics or other materials with those who actually purchase the materials, for example, recycled resins uh, for use in their own products. And EPR incense industry innovation to create packaging and products which meet EPR policy requirements while reducing costs. And so the innovation means that materials can be more recyclable, more environmentally friendly, and, and easier to convert into new materials uh, through remanufacturing. So the proposed policy shifts that we're engaging on are creating an overarching EPR regulatory framework that would enable future EPR programs, developing an EPR approach for packaging, paper products, and single-use plastics, and working with industry to identify other plastics to include in the program in the future, um, and developing an EPR approach for the hazardous and special waste, or sorry, special products. So this is what we traditionally call HHW, or household hazardous waste. So today, um, we have no overarching EPR framework. Um, we are um, benefiting from being a little slower to the game because we have been able to really study what has happened in other provinces, namely uh, BC and Ontario, where they have done extensive work on EPR. Um, individual municipalities right now offer their own programs uh, based on their priorities and what they're able to achieve, and they need to find their own markets uh, for their collected materials. And, and this can be challenging to create the economies of scale that, that EPR can create. The proposed changes will move us to a future where material diversion and recycling is increased while creating economic opportunities. Recycling can be expanded by incorporating additional materials over time. And industry will be responsible for funding and operating coordinated and consistent programs across the province, which create the economies of scale. So the municipal role, government's uh, not looking to regulate the municipal role. Um, currently, waste and recycling services are provided by municipalities, and some municipalities have invested significant human and capital um, assets into operating recycling programs. Alberta proposes that the producers will determine how to operate the programs to meet regulatory obligations, including options for local government participation. And when we look to other jurisdictions, we see that there is uh, good collaboration between the, produce, uh, the, the pros, the producers, and the municipal governments. Materials proposed for inclusion in the EPR programs are primary packaging, grouped and secondary and distribution packaging, packaging-like products, for example, takeout containers, um, ancillary or single-use plastics, um, printed and unprinted paper, so examples of those would be flyers, brochures, newspapers, magazines, etc. Um, and it excludes uh, hard and soft cover books, um, hardcover periodicals, and other paper products that could become unsafe or unsanitary. And this is consistent with what we see in other jurisdictions in Canada. For the hazardous and special products, or formerly known as HHW, we're looking at designating the following materials, which would be pesticides, batteries, uh, non-refillable pressurized containers, products with flammable, toxic, or corrosive characteristics, and containers in which the designated product is contained. We are looking at targets, accessibility, and service standards to ensure there's uh, relative consistency across the province. So a 75% recovery rate um, and material-specific targets. 
We are looking at setting similar targets to those in BC um, for these materials. Accessibility and service standards for PPP and single-use plastics. Um, we're, you know, we're looking at service to all municipalities and local governments, and at minimum, the same type of uh, service that's currently offered within those communities. And then in terms of the HSP, or, or formerly known as HHW, um, consumer accessibility requirements based on either municipal population size or the number of retail locations within a municipality. And the proposed regulation would include service standards for collection. So an example of that would be hours of operation. Um, we are looking at proposing similar standards to what's in place in Ontario um, for that. So the details of all of this are outlined within our discussion paper. If you haven't had a chance to read that, I encourage you to do that. Um, and we look forward to today's discussion. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Heather. Really appreciate that. Um, the, the linkage to municipalities from your discussion paper, I think is so important. Um, and, and just so everybody knows, I, I think Heather's gonna be hanging around and I think MLA Turton will be around for at least a bit as well. So um, they may wanna jump in in some of the discussion as well. But for right now, I'm actually gonna shift gears and we're going to move over to our municipal representatives. And for that, I am going to hand the reins over to Peter DeMong. So Peter is certainly another of our EPR champions. He is a counselor for the city of Calgary, and he has really been involved in the whole advocacy and, and even, even education around EPR. So Peter has been really key to our discussions and I was thrilled when he agreed to actually take on the moderator role because his experience and his enthusiasm, I think will really make this a very interesting experience. So he's going to introduce our, um, our, our municipal panelists who we brought together and they are going to give some background on their experiences, some recommendations um, that they would have for us. And then we're going to jump whole into discussion. So any questions that you have, please use the chat function. So if you put your question into chat, then I will share those with Peter and we will be having those discussions for the next hour and a half or so. So um, that's the, the way that we're going to make the discussion operate today. So love your chat function. And um, I now will turn it over to Peter. Welcome Peter and thank you for doing this. Thank you, Christina. I'm happy to be here. Actually, I'm delighted to be here to anytime I get to chat about EPR is a fun day for me. Um, kind of making me blush there. So I'll kind of try and avoid that. So um, I, I am a my name is Peter DeMong. I am a city councillor for the city of Calgary. I'm also a vice president of AUMA for cities over 500,000. Uh, and through those two organizations is how I learned and started to realize just how important a program like EPR is. And yes, I want to send my thank you to uh, Mr. Cyril Turton for having brought forward the legislation that was the beginnings or, or at least the midpoint of getting it into the government's hands. So thank you. Um, so I just wanted to say we have an amazing panel of speakers today who collectively have on almost encyclopedic knowledge based on EPR. So now that I've put you guys way high on a pedestal, let's see what you do have to say. Um, starting with, uh, I wanted to introduce Andrew Doy, environmental planner at Metro Vancouver, began working at Metro Vancouver in 2001 and has been focusing on EPR programs for over a decade. Metro Vancouver has a region of 21 municipalities, one treaty first nation and one electoral area. 
I was hoping Andrew might introduce a little bit more about himself for the next couple of minutes, and then we'll get to the other two panelists. Over to you, Andrew. Great. Thank you very much. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I was involved in representing uh, a number of our member municipalities, including City of Vancouver and City of Surrey and others, uh, in this transition to uh, EPR for packaging and printed paper. Uh, and one of the things I think is a key for all local governments to go through is to develop uh, some sort of a transition plan. And, and sort of this will depend certainly on, on the regulations put forward by uh, the ministry and, and what exact options are available for local governments. But uh, I really encourage all local governments to spend time thinking about how their existing recycling operations are working uh, and, and being prepared to have those discussions uh, with the product stewards as things move forward. Uh, uh, I think that transition plan will be key for understanding uh, a game plan, uh, certainly for the priorities for each community. Uh, and then a second piece of advice is um, uh, whatever time you think will be necessary to go through these processes, it'll take longer. It'll, it'll take more time. It'll take more effort. Um, and that's just one of the learnings that we had was uh, it's a really significant uh, investment in, in staff time to go through this process. Thank you for that, Andrew. We'll get back to you shortly. Uh, next is Cameron Bohan, regional district uh, uh, from the regional district of Okanagan, Samalcomin. Um, he has worked with RDOS Solid Waste Group in Penticton, BC for over 16 years, where he's been project lead on major solid waste projects. Cam is a board member with the Recycling Council of BC and a member of SWANA, the Southern Interior Waste Management Association, and the BC Product Stewardship Council. That's quite a resume, Cameron. Over to you. Yeah, I, do, I just sit there at the meetings. I don't do much with it. So. <laughs> um, but I really enjoy solid waste. Um, I think it really helps my community. Um, just about me, I started up in 2004 with the regional district. Uh, our we're, not, we're a regional district that covers off about 80,000 people. Our major community is Penticton. So I know a lot of people in Alberta know Penticton. It's a place to come and have fun. So uh, please come. Hopefully after COVID, you guys are more than welcome to come. Um, in terms of uh, my understanding of EPR, um, with the if we're going to be focused on the PPP today, the, the printed paper and packaging, uh, 2008 was a big turning point for me because we saw after the uh, financial crisis, the shipping uh, lanes shut down for a while between us and China and all that recycling backwashed into North America. And it became really apparent that our recycling program was broken. Uh, we were shipping essentially unsorted materials over to China, some of it garbage, some of it unrecoverable. Um, the stories coming out of China and other, other countries uh, along the Pacific Rim were pretty horrifying in what was happening to our recycling. Um, but there was still a desire from our board to continue on and basically black box this material, um, realizing that some of our materials are going overseas or potentially even being landfilled in BC. So when 2014 came, um, we had a really good uh, opportunity to work with uh, what became Recycle BC. At the time, they called themselves multi-material um, Multi-material BC, and uh, their their consultation approach I thought was was really good. They they did focus in on local governments trying to find our needs. Uh, of benefit to us was um, that they were negotiated a contract language that was identical for all parties. So small municipality, large municipality, regional district, uh, they had the same contract language. So people like Andrew were looking at it. People like Ben were looking at it, myself was looking at it. So when we had those consultations with um, uh, Recycle BC now, they brought forward a contract that we could then apply, look at, uh, make sure that we may, uh, brought up concerns to Recycle BC that they could address across the entire province. And implementing it uh, was excellent. I can honestly say that the curbside program for us has worked very effectively. It's basically them cutting us a check. Uh, but we were lucky enough to have our program 
uh, within their scope. So that might be something local governments have to look at as a scope of collection. And then the second thing is depots are more difficult. Um, Recycle BC is very honest about this. They say uh, depots are about 10% of their materials collected, about 90% of their problems. So as we as we chat today, I think those communities that provide depots to their residents, um, that would be a greater concern for consideration. But uh, when we look at it before, we had recycling going overseas. It was unaudited. It was a black box. Today, we have that material now fully audited through the province of BC's requirements through EPR. Uh, we also have, we're now receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars or before we were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to manage this program. So it's been a success for us uh, with, with cautions. And I think any new program, um, it's really good to start these consultation processes early. And I'm really uh, happy to be here today. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that, Cameron. It sounds like that uh, kind of disaster back in 2008-9 was the precursor to the SWORD program, but I'm sure we'll get into that later. Uh, and then third on our list is uh, Ben Van Nostrand from Columbia Shuswap Regional District. Environmental Health Services team leader, CSRD has the largest Recycle BC Depot program in the province for the packaging and printed paper stewardship program. Over to you, Ben. Good morning, all. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about uh, the Recycle BC program, the EPR programs for, for our region anyways. Um, we administer a, a very large depot program. So um, our regional district is spread over from Salmon Arm uh, all the way over to Golden to the Alberta border. Um, and we administer 18 of uh, these remote depots. And prior to Recycle BC or the, the EPR program starting, essentially they were unmanned, um, unregulated depots uh, where open 24 hours a day and people could drop their recycling. And um, we transitioned in 2015, we put our hands up and said, yes, we'll take the offer from Recycle BC and we'll move those 18 depots into the program that um, Multi-Materials BC, now Recycle BC was offering where we had to transition away from unmanned depots to a, a more of a staffed approach and provide some infrastructure and security so that we're now managing the materials that uh, were specified under the program. And we basically did that almost overnight. And so uh, it wasn't without a lot of work ahead of time to get ready for that transition. But, you know, on January 1st, uh, I believe 2015, folks showed up and were now not able to drop things off just unmanned, they had to actually sort stuff. And it was quite a transition for the public. Um, but it has been a huge success for us. Uh, the cost of the traditional program, it was running us about $1.4 million to run those unmanned depots, uh, to haul the materials to the processor, and then to pay for the processing. Uh, the, the offer from Recycle BC or MNBC was, we will pay for the processing and we will pay for the transfer. So although it's not perfect, it's still costing us about a half million dollars a year. It's still far better than what we were paying and we're getting far cleaner materials that are actually being processed, uh, a lot of them being processed now within, within the province of BC, rather than as Cameron was saying, it's being sent overseas. So big successes there. I guess my, um, my recommendation would be to be an early adopter. Um, get, on get on board early and put your hand up and say you want to be a part of the, the process, be a part of the discussions and, and get in early so that you're in. And because once you're in, you can effectively make some changes. If you're out, uh, it, it becomes tougher, as we've seen in BC, to jump in. So get in early, um, put your hand up and be a part of the process to, uh, to, to be involved in it because it is an excellent program and we've had some great successes. 
Thanks for the uh, opportunity to participate. Well, thank you for that, Ben. Sounds like some amazing words of wisdom from somebody's that, somebody that's gone through it before. So hopefully we in Alberta will take these uh, pearls and actually use them wisely. So I'm just going to kind of start off with, I mean, considering we're talking about municipalities on this in this webinar, uh, I, I want to talk about the municipal local government role. So Alberta proposes producers determine how to operate the program to meet regulatory obligations, including options for local government participation. So what considerations should government be aware of to ensure a smooth transition from local government responsibility to industry responsibility? Example, stranded assets, long-term contracts, transition timing. So if any of you three would like to kind of tie in on that one to begin with. Um, in terms of, uh, we did have uh, a contract that was in midstream when this started in 2014. Um, we had to negotiate with our hauler. Um, luckily, they were awarded uh, because you have to understand um, there's two contractors that you're engaged with when you're doing this program in BC. One is Recycle BC. You have a contract with them as a local government. You're then their subcontractor to provide the service. So you have to follow their rules as, as any subcontractor would. And those rules have to be looked at and make sure you can fulfill those rules. Um, and then the other group that's changed originally was called Green by Nature. It was a consortium of three businesses. Now it's GFL is now on that contract. And they're the processors. They take uh, the recycling in, they manage the recycling, and then they report back to Recycle BC the, where the materials ended up. So you don't have a direct contractual arrangement with uh, Green by Nature. Um, in terms of, of our assets, um, we didn't have many. We've actually installed new assets to meet the Recycle BC requirements. So we had to do an ROI based on the, uh, the money we were gonna receive from Recycle BC and report that to our elected officials. Uh, we did show that if we got good assets and some of our smaller sites were using simplified shipping containers that would be modified to receive recycling. Um, so we could show we could pay that off within 11 or 12 years, which for us was an acceptable uh, cost. In terms of our collection program, we had to renegotiate some key terms to ensure that our, our collector was protected. There are fines associated with contamination in this contract with Recycle BC that we have. It's a 3% contamination threshold, and there's very few municipalities that can meet that 3%. Um, generally, the blue box programs are closer. Uh, I have a mixed uh, single stream program, so it's much harder for me to make. And then the cart-based programs are the hardest. They're often over 10% contamination sometimes. So, so when we looked at these challenges, um, the biggest fear that we saw from the contractual side was the uh, contamination. We, we didn't think we'd get down to 3%, and we've shown that we cannot. Recycle BC has been uh, very good to work with in terms of making sure that we adopt best practices. And that's where they're hammering those groups that don't adopt good practices, that don't take this seriously. So the working relationship with them, although it's scary in the contract language, our actual working relationship has been pretty strong with Recycle BC, and they've taken a very reasonable approach to contamination for our collected materials. Let the other guys speak. Okay, thank you for that, Cameron. If there's anything in particular, Andrew, Ben wanted to chime in on that, or I can kind of pose another question. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. Sorry, yeah, I'll just, uh, and to take a, a, a broader view than, um, than Cameron just uh, presented, uh, I think when in the early days of the program, uh, I believe MMBC, and, and you'll probably hear us use MMBC and RecycleBC interchangeably. It's the same organization. They just sort okay, of rebranded midway through. Um, their original approach was to look at, you know, is it possible to develop a single province-wide contract? Uh, and I think once they started looking into it, um, they recognized that that was 
going to be challenging in a number of areas, and one of which is is how do how do local governments go from a role where they're kind of a municipal authority and they're delivering the service that's uh, typically fairly popular with residents, and 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 you know it's one of the main environmental areas that residents engage in, and and how do we you know sort of go through this thought process of saying okay well, we're moving on from this uh, providing this municipal service to now being a contractor to an agency who's uh, has a regulatory authority to deliver uh, services in this area. Um, and so that's a bit of an, an uncomfortable position for local governments in that you're now becoming a contractor, which is very uh, familiar, I think, for, for local governments. Um, but ultimately, the way the program unfolded was it allowed a series of options. So you could continue as a local authority and, and fund it through your 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 tax or, or utility revenues and, and sort of continue as if the program never existed. Uh, you could also become a contractor. Uh, many local governments chose that option. Uh, or you could simply say, uh, you know, we no longer seek a role in, in recycling uh, and we'll, we'll turn it over to the producers to, to provide that service directly. Uh, and so I think having that option, let local governments choose their own future and uh, it, it let them plan for their own um, winding down of contracts or looking at their asset replacement and and being a bit more active in that role. And it wasn't sort of something that happened to them. It was something that they could actively plan for. So having that flexibility, I think, is, is going to be important to move forward. That's excellent. And I can tell you as a municipal councillor, having, having options as a municipality is something we rarely do. So <laughs> that's something we're going to look forward to. So I'm going to ask a couple of really quick yes or no answers from the chat box, just from what we'd actually gone through. Um, so, uh, back to Cameron for a quick yes or no. Is the 3% contamination threshold pre or post sort at the MRF? That's when it's dropped off. So when, when it comes out of the back end of the truck. So that's, that's, that's you, that's the, the liabilities moved from you to, to Recycle BC or their contractor, GB and GFL. They then take, take on that responsibility. So they have, uh, their Recycle BC sends out their employees that do audits. So they have a standardized approach uh, that, that there was some friction on that for sure. Certainly mm-hmm. some groups felt the standardized approach was wrong and they, there was some strong debate on that. But again, Recycle BC listens and they've, they've, they, they, they do their approach, which is fair across BC. So they'll grab a load, um, sample size it, uh, do a sort. Uh, it's generally by weight. And so really heavy things like batteries or uh, metals can really, electronics, uh, TVs, those can really knock you out of your contamination. Uh, hazards. Uh, we see a lot of single single uh, use propane cylinders. Those are right. dangerous. Um, so okay. they're identifying those hazards as, as well as uh, identifying the different percentages. We then receive report cards. Bigger municipalities will get more audits. Um, smaller will get less. But it gives you an idea of where you can focus your education campaign in around reducing that. Uh, so the 3% is non-program materials is where I think the contract goes. And I, I have to refer to the contract language. Um, I don't want to be, I'm not an expert on the contract language. But you can definitely find the Recycle BC. Um, the they do have their contracts, I believe, still online. If not, it's definitely available uh, in the web. And you can actually look okay. at the same contract that every one of us has signed, because it's an inflexible contract in terms. It's everyone in BC signs the same contract, so you can look at that language if you have any questions. But how it's being enforced? It's generally uh, a a stick to push you towards best practices, and that okay. they want they want that as a strong, clear stick. They can come in and say, you're not doing a good enough job. And um, they, they know that there's a few local governments that aren't doing a good job in terms of education, um, 
contamination. The drivers aren't doing it, so they have the wrong contract with their with their collector if they're not collecting it themselves. It doesn't incentivize the contractor to have clean materials. So all of that has to be worked into your contracts today. If you're already working with a municipal recycling facility, a MRF, to drop off those materials. So hopefully if you're already collecting, that's already in there. If you're already collecting at a depot, you should already have some of those in there already. Uh, but it is it made a lot of sleepless nights for a lot of BC because that 3%, if you look at it, it's just a number. It's almost impossible to achieve for many collection programs. Gotcha, Cameron. Thank you for that. And then just very quickly again, Ben, if we could ask you, uh, there's a question to clarify. Recycle BC pays for the collection and hauling, but you pay for the staff manning the depots. Is that correct? That's correct. So the costs associated with the hauling and the processing went away. And uh, the municipalities were still on the hook to provide that infrastructure and that staffing to support the program. Okay. So on that line, uh, so is this one of the few mechanisms that we can, that, that are needed to be in place to ensure sufficient geographic coverage to serve all Albertans? Or is there some other manage option other than uh, the depots? Uh, well, for us, it's just, it's just depots, I think, and, and curbside. That's, those are the key uh, collection points for the Recycle uh, BC program is through deep, a depot network and through the curbside collection. And so uh, for us politically, um, instead of giving everything back to Recycle BC, our politicians wanted to ensure that we maintain that rural service. And hence, um, you know, that, that's really why we have so many depots. I don't think that without us uh, putting up our hand and saying, yes, we want to continue on with Recycle BC and partner with them. I don't know that we would have the same level of service if Recycle BC was to implement a program and provide depot services. So that's sort of the rub is it, 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 um, it, it, it our ge geographical spread and, and whatnot probably wouldn't lend itself to as many depots as we have now if uh, Recycle BC was simply to come in and take over the program. And do you see that happening anytime soon? Uh, no, like Cameron sort of alluded to, Recycle BC has been excellent to work with and, and we do have service agreements with them. And so we're under contract to provide those services at those 18 depots. And unless Recycle BC, I guess, came in and, and wanted to amend the agreements and reduce the number of depots, which I can't see them doing, but that would be the only way probably that we would see that reduction in service. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cameron, did you want to jump in on that for a quick sec? Yeah, I talked too much. Um, and, uh, the one thing I'd, I'd say, so everyone understands how the model works. Curbside, you're paid by house. So you have one house, you get paid. They have three different levels. So an urban gets paid slightly less because it's cheaper to collect. A very rural, like my communities, you get paid a bit more. And they, they develop those strategies based on um, Ontario's model of understanding what the costs are for collection. So I believe one of the gentlemen here that interviewed me on this for the last, last 10 years is, is, is on the call. Um, but they actually modeled that so that you, it is it's pretty darn close. Like for collection, for curbside, if you're doing curbside now, it more or less covers your costs. It's pretty darn close. The depot is totally different. The depot is based on tonnage. So small depots in rural areas get a smaller tonnage. So it's harder for them to cover their costs. Right. When I look at our large depot, which is in Penticton, we more than cover our costs because we have tonnage of cardboard coming in. It's probably some leakage of potentially commercial, like we're, we're, we're trying to set up commercial groups aside, but sometimes they leak in. So that depot is very cost effective. The small depots, you have to do an ROI. And like Ben said, you probably have to subsidize those small areas because if you only get a few tons in, you're only going to get paid so much. And this might not cover your full costs. 
So often we're, we're, we're putting that into transfer stations for other materials like garbage, other recyclables, to make it cost effective for us in these rural communities that need the service because they don't have access to a curbside option. Thank you for that, Cameron. Okay, so you kind of touched on one of my favorite parts of the EPR, and that's the money side of the equation. Um, so I'm just going to kind of give you a general question to kind of throw out there and see who wants it. What are potential savings for Alberta municipalities if EPR for packaging and paper products is regulated? Anybody want to jump in on that one? Andrew? Yeah, I, I think certainly if uh, a local government chooses to turn the collection over to the stewardship agency entirely, then then all of the costs associated with that with that recycling program will go away. Uh, so effectively, that that cost will go down to zero because the the stewardship agency is now paying directly for the hauler to to service your your multifamily units or your your curbside um, single family homes. Um, otherwise, the incentive offset some of the costs. And, and like Cam was saying earlier, uh, sometimes, you know, you're, you're pretty close to the incentive and you can cover your costs and sometimes you can't. So it depends on, on individual situations. I don't think there's a, a blanket statement that we could make that says, you know, you can all uh, save money on this. Um, but in, in many circumstances, a good portion of the costs will be covered, um, but I, I don't think all of the costs will be covered in, in all cases. Yeah, and I, I oh, go ahead, Ben. I I, I agree. Um, you know, for us, like I mentioned, some of those numbers. I mean, um, it was like I said, it was costing us over a million dollars to run the program. Um, and as Cameron alluded to, we do receive because it's our. We have the agreement with Recycle DC that you know our local government does for those eighteen depots. We do receive revenue from Recycle DC for the materials that we collect. And so we receive approximately $200,000 a year in revenue from Recycle BC to run those 18 depots. Um, but again, it costs us about, you know, five to $600,000 a year to run that network. And so the cost that we receive for the materials that we collect certainly doesn't cover our costs, but it, but it does help to subsidize that. And within our regional district, we have four member municipalities and all of them took a different approach. Some of them said, yes, we'll take the offer and continue to run the curbside collection program, take the money and run the program. And then we have another member municipality said, no, we don't want anything to do with uh, the program anymore. They handed it over to Recycle BC. Recycle BC was then responsible for the curbside collection program within the municipality. And I guess there's cons to each of those models. I think you lose some of that in-house expertise. You're going to get the calls no matter what. In my opinion, it's it's better to have your staff and uh, you know available to answer those questions. You're on the ground. You're more local. Um, that being said, I don't see huge uh, rubs or issues in that member municipality where they did hand it over to Recycle DC. It's just two different models of delivering the same service. Yeah, and I'd say there's also another issue that um, that Andrew brought up with his multifamilies. Uh, I think in bigger centers, potentially, and Andrew can correct me, maybe there was some some collectors that came in and took over those programs without involving local governments. But in the interior, from what I can see, only local government multifamily programs still collect recycling through the um, the Recycle BC program. There was no private haulers that came forward and started taking the Recycle BC incentives to to offset the costs for those people that live in multifamily. 
So it is a concern of ours in the regional district as we have some areas that have local government service for multifamily, other areas that have, have to pay commercial rates for their recycling and they don't have any access to the Recycle BC program currently. So that'll be reviewed through our solid waste management planning over the next couple of years because they're, they're essentially paying for the program but not receiving it just because they live in multifamily. I see. Okay. Um, so there's been some questions with regards to the whole ICI context over in the chat room. I'm just going to kind of start the question off with, what about ICI? Is there is there an opportunity to bring ICI into this program? I would imagine in Alberta, it might be a little bit farther off. We've got to get the residential started first, but is there some looking at uh, from the BC point now that you're well into this program about ex- uh, accepting ICI somehow into this program? Um, I can't speak on behalf of the province, um, but I can say that local governments continue to lobby the province to examine um, the ICNI sector and how we get that into the um, program. I think probably Andrew has more insights in terms of, you know, the bigger Metro Vancouver and how they, it sort of impacts them. But I can say, you know, it's, it's quite frustrating for us, you know, in those smaller rural areas where you might have a ABC plumbing or some sort of commercial type operation that has cardboard that can't use our depots. I mean, it's not, it's, it's non-program material, even though it's, it's cardboard. So it, it doesn't make a lot of sense in those rural situations. Um, I, I think that, um, that that's definitely a rub that we continue to push the province to say, you know, why not? And, and I, I think they are looking at ways to um, sort of take a bit of a, a financial penalty to continue to manage that different types of models, but I know that in Vancouver, it's, it's a little bit different in terms of the bigger players and, and how that material is managed. And, and I can certainly understand how it's different in the urban rural split, but on those community, uh, those, those depots and the, uh, I, I can't help but wonder why wouldn't they just start charging a certain dollar value per ton of drop-off from the small or, or, or from the ICI just, it, it would, it, to me, it would just simply make sense from the, from the corporate point of view, from the, the depots cost revenue point of view. Uh, it just seems like a very simple solution. Hey, Andrew, I, I can answer that because that's what we're doing at the RDOS is we do have a fee on there, but there's leakage. Um, so we do get some of the big uh, bunches of cardboard coming in and paying $110 per metric ton, which is uh, still subsidizing some of this cardboard, like cardboard markets haven't always been the rosiest in BC. Um, so you're paying, you're charging these guys a lot of money. Uh, they're kind of used to the, uh, to the subsidy. So again, it's a change So the local businesses are, are very uh, powerful in uh, local government. Um, these are, these are friends of counselors or friends of directors. So, um, they, they can make a lot of noise if you, if you go after them. The one thing that we're trying to do to speak to Ben's point is we're trying to meet Recycle BC halfway. If you join the program and you already have an existing ICI collection within your program, you can, you can actually c- calculate that percentage and present that to Recycle BC, and then they don't pay you for that amount. Um, so, so that's one way for the collection program. But I'm trying to start a, a new ICI program, and that's where they're kind of balking at it. They're saying, no, we don't really want to take on any new ICI, but if your collection program already collected from ICI, as it does in like Princeton, which is a community in my regional district, maybe 20%, I don't know what their percentages of their materials were ICI, they don't get paid for that 20%, but it still goes in the same program. So, so for me, that's great because what we're seeing in the rural communities is a lack of access to municipal recycling facilities. Um, especially a few years ago when I was doing more of my research on, on some of my industrial, my commercial stuff, 
the, the prices have collapsed and they, the, the markets didn't really want to, to support recycling. It's coming up again. Maybe we can get people to do it again. But you're, you're kind of at an ebb and flow. If you, have the, 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 if you could even just, if I could just pay for my program to collect ICI, bring it through the Recycled BC program, I'd have access to probably the cheapest and best recycling in BC at a hopefully more reasonable price for those ICI. So that's where I'm pushing our regional district is to, is to hopefully work with Recycled BC to, to allow us to add ICI, bring it through our programs so that it, we pay a fair price to, to Recycled BC for what's happening uh, for, the, for the processing of it. We charge the costs over to the ICI sector. But that's the middle ground we're fighting for. And so what Ben's talking about is a full EPR program for ICI. Be difficult because each of these different businesses has different cardboard, paper uses, their own internal materials that, that they're going to create. So it's difficult to have a standardized program where a household is a household and resident is a resident. And they generate similar amounts of materials per person. Yeah, There's ability to kind of manage the residential side. So I understand where, where there's um, pushback on the ICI um, inclusion. But we're trying to find ways to work with Recycled BC across the province because, again, any negotiations we do with Recycled BC, it affects every other party in British Columbia. It's a universal contract. So they're very cautious and they move very slowly, but they do consult. And these are the kind of consultations that I'm having with them. Okay. Thank you for that, uh, Cameron. Um, so, so basically a lot of it has to do with the ebb and flow of the cost of the product and the end use stuff. Uh, we here in Alberta really don't understand the concept of ebb and flow of product costing and pricing uh, with our oil and gas industry. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, so just kind of jumping around to the, the, the next little section, um, single use items. So there's been a great deal of discussion with regards to banning single plastic, single use items. Uh, I, I think having gone through this whole COVID-19 craze, there, there, we're, I'm hoping that there's some understanding of the, of the, of the actual need for single use items as, as far as a ban. How, how do you feel about the inclusion of single use items and should the definition be broader to mirror the Target Environment Canada SUIs? I'm sorry, and I don't know what SUI stands for. Single use items. Oh, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think single-use items is, is certainly a key for a number of communities in, in BC. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, bans on things like single-use shopping bags in, in communities uh, throughout the province, uh, both urban and rural areas. Um, and I think for if you look at it for the end, the experience of the end user, um, having having an opportunity to recycle a uh, a takeout container, but not the the utensils that came with it, or having the opportunity to recycle a cup, but not the straw, um, feels a little bit um, challenging um, and creates an extra barrier. So I I I think and and you know full credit to the ministry here. They're looking at. Um, I think they've actually already changed the uh, changed the regulation, or have talked about changing the regulation to include single use items. I believe starting in 2033 in that Recycle BC program. So if you can, sorry, 2023. Okay, um, way better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that, that's so really that can, slow moving. Yeah, <laughs> we move at the speed of government, right? So, <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, so that the the end user, you know, um, the resident can can recycle those items uh, together, um, and 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 part of that, I think, is the process of building in those producers that uh, provide those items, um, giving them an opportunity to sort of. Um, develop their their accounts so that they can report properly, uh, developing the budget so that they can pay for the service properly. And so that all does take a little bit of time. Um, but I, I do think it makes sense to 
address those items that sort of go together naturally for for the customer's experience, um, and and sort of having having definitions where some of some of a collective is is recyclable or and part of the program and some of it isn't um, it just puts a lot of onus on the resident to understand uh, a lot of these producer arrangements that, um, you know, a lot of us who do this for a living have a challenge keeping up with, with that task. Uh, but expecting residents to do that, I think um, probably is a bit too challenging. So um, it, it does make sense. Um, and, and I think the way that they're approaching it here in BC is that some of the items will go in through the EPR program, um, but local governments still have the autonomy to say, you know, if we don't want this product or we want to phase out of it completely, then they still have the opportunity to do that uh, through um, uh, uh, bans. And, 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 that, yeah. and for me, that's where a major quandary comes forward. I mean, if you, I mean, and and let's be blunt here, the, the a lot of municipalities in BC is where a lot of the single-use plastics concept of banning them has has really brought brought the concept forward to the rest of Canada. So, how do you square the circle? How do you have this problem where, in two years, two years plus, we will start seeing these items be accepted into an EPR system in BC? But even in the in the in the ensuing two years, two and a half years, you have municipalities that are in the midst of banning and not banning these. So, how do we come up with any kind of uh, uh, go forward plan on this? Uh, it's well, certainly it's going to be a challenge. Um, uh, but it, I think it's uh, the approach that we're following here in BC allows each community to make that decision for themselves. Uh, and so uh, the the EPR approach sort of backstops um, the whole province in that all of the material uh, that sort of falls within that category could then be at a minimum could be recycled. Um, if a community wants to go further than that and say, you know, we want to be good environmental stewards, we want to prevent this from being waste created in the first place, then they still have that option. Um, but their neighboring community might not make that same decision. So, so I do like the idea that it really leaves uh, control for some of the on the ground experience to the communities and they can control that through their own bylaws. But at a minimum, Instead of it going uh, into the garbage, uh, it's throughout the rest of the province. Uh, it could still be uh, used as, um, or, or still go into the recycling system. Uh, now, I mean, I, I guess the, the big, um, you know, unknown through all this is is how will the producers respond? Uh, if exactly. it's if it's banned in a community, will they simply just change their their systems, you know, to serve the whole province? Well, we can certainly hope that the industry responds in that kind of a manner across across the country, because in one province or in one municipality, I find it hard to believe. Uh, I did want to move into the whole concept of targets, but before I do that, I was going to kind of uh, uh, share my screen with Miss Christina Steidel uh, and uh, have her ask a couple of the chat questions out here. Great. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, I'll just jump in with a, there's been a, um, a bit of a thread going on the stewardship plans, and I know this, is, this has come up in the discussions around do, do we actually need stewardship plans? Should all the producers have to have stewardship plans? I know BC has been discussing this as well. Um, so the question that has come up is basically, okay, if we don't require detailed stewardship plans anymore uh, to allow a bit more innovation flexibility on the part of producers, how then do municipalities have the confidence of knowing what they're dealing with and how they can actually plan their transition and, and as part of that, too, there was a supplementary question around perhaps do we can we partly deal with that by having a process where municipalities sit down together with producers to come up with some of those strategies. So if we can just throw that question out, I think that will deal with a couple of those that came up on the chat. 
that's a tough question. Um, I would suggest that um, it it would be it would require a lot of faith. I think. Uh, for the local governments, depending on what options are on the table, it's it's a bit difficult to have this conversation, sort of in the abstract. Um, but uh, I, there, it feels like there would need to be some way for um, the regulator to sort of backstop performance uh, and ensure that service levels are maintained and so on. And, and not to say that the or imply that the producers would seek to reduce service levels, but um, just to provide some sort of certainty uh, going forward. That's that service levels would be maintained, and if there's not a stewardship plan where stakeholders have the opportunity to provide feedback and ask questions, um, then it feels like the regulation might need to be a bit more prescriptive. Um, and I, I'm not sure if that's preferable. It's it's probably just a different uh, a model, um, and and probably one that we in BC aren't too familiar with. Um, but it w- it would feel like you would need to to have a bit more prescription in the re- the provincial regulatory uh, side um, if there isn't the opportunity to provide uh, those comments and have stakeholders feedback into uh, a planning process. Yeah, and at to Andrew's point, I've never seen cabinet, the minister, um, the EPR branch of the Ministry of Environment and re- re- MMBC, now Recycle BC, and local governments work as well together. I'd say the implementation of this program, there's definitely issues, but there was a reasonable timeline that was adapted by cabinet um, to allow for the consultation approach to ensure that local governments were protected, um, to ensure local government feedback was in, it was basically open and transparent. So everyone knew what people were saying. Um, there's time for there to be mistakes made and there were some mistakes made in the rollout. Um, not so much with the local governments, but certainly with some of the, uh, the small businesses, and there was some blowback on that. Um, but so there, there was time, and you can't rush EPR. EPR takes time, and any good program will take years of pre-development, development, um, a timeline for implementation, timeline for negotiations, timeline for contracts to be signed um, before the rubber hits the road. This isn't a process you can you can hyperspeed it. You need to have the political levels in the province, um, the ministry the local governments and the, the steward, stewardship organization, whoever the stewards hire, it could be like a group like Recycle BC, um, but it takes time. Yeah, and just just to add on to what Cam was saying, um, I, I think uh, one of the advantages that we had in BC was that uh, because we've been doing EPR for so long, uh, a lot of the local governments had relationships with the ministry on this. They had relationships with other EPR programs. So there was a probably a level of trust and comfort and familiarity and, and um, that was built in uh, that um, you know made the 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 packaging one is tricky. It, it is certainly one of the most challenging transitions that any jurisdiction can go through. Uh, and uh, if there's an opportunity for uh, the communities in Alberta to sort of start to build a relationship with the producers, I think that'll help have those discussions. Um, and certainly if, if the ministry can step forward with some performance measures or some standards that sort of set the bounds for what's possible, uh, I think that'll also help in, in sort of facilitating that relationship. But it, it'll, like Camp said, it'll take time uh, and, and it's not going to be uh, an easy or a comfortable transition. Thank you for listening to this 2021 webinar series. Tune in to the next episode for the second half of this podcast with municipalities. 
Search for On the Cusp, Alberta Circular Podcast on iTunes and Google Podcasts for more from the RCA or visit recycle.ab.ca to see the full presentations.